Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Bland. He is the father and the face of functional medicine, a new model of healthcare for preventing and reversing chronic illness, which we will explore today. He was a founding board member of Bastyr University, the first accredited school of naturopathic medicine in the U.S., and he has mentored doctors like Mehmet Oz, Joel Furman, and Mark Hyman, and he's taught practitioners around the world. Dr. Bland founded the Institute for Functional Medicine in Seattle, as well as the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, and he has just come out with a fascinating new book called The Disease Delusion, Conquering the Causes of Chronic Illness for a Healthier, Longer, and Happier Life. Dr. Bland, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, welcome. I'm so pleased to have you with us. Well, Mary, I can't tell you how privileged I am to be with you. Thank you so much, and uh, I really look forward to this discussion. You know, your book crystallizes for me the long overdue revisioning of healthcare, where doctors actually talk to the individual and find out what's going on in their lives, you know, in, instead of just looking at lab results. This is an integral approach that I think is the start of a real revolution in medicine. Now, you've been working along these lines for a long time. Do you think the revolution is finally taking hold? Yes, you know, this uh, evolution that you're talking about is really um, almost revolution and because of the nature of how rapidly things are changing. And I don't think it can change fast enough for all the reasons that we know that we have a virtual epidemic of chronic disease happening in our society right now. Uh, type 2 diabetes is uh, growing exponentially. Uh, we see more and more dementia in our society. We see this autism spectrum disorder increasing dramatically in our children. We see arthritis uh, becoming in various forms more common, things like thyroiditis, uh, autoimmune disease of the thyroid gland, gluten-related uh, problems of the intestinal tract and, and the nervous system. Uh, we're seeing a very, very dramatic rise in the burden of chronic illness and the way that we've been treating these conditions, which I call pill for the ill approach, just has not been working. We are not seeing it being successful in beating back the rising tide of these diseases. So I believe that this revolution that we're observing right now, which is is the age of the individual in healthcare, it's personalization, it's moving away from medicine for the average, which is the way that we've been treating people for the past 50 years, to medicine for the individual and personalization of their lifestyle, diet, uh, stress management, and their medication needs as well as nutrient needs. All of those features are creating an absolutely remarkable transformation in healthcare that will put the patient at the center of their uh, system rather than the disease at the center. We've been a disease-centric society focused on disease rather than focused on the individual patient, and that is transforming itself right now as we speak. Well, in a way, this is going really back to ancient roots. As Hippocrates said, let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. Yes, I think that uh, what we have seen, it's very interesting. It reminds me of the, of the classic movie, Back to the Future, 
is that through the lens of genomic science, which, as we all know, has started to decode the book of life, that's our human genome, so that we understand this code that's locked into our DNA. It was thought when that was deciphered in 2000, uh, when the announcement was made in the Rose Garden, uh, that we had suddenly decoded the human genome, that we would understand the genes that control all these diseases, and we would find a drug to treat each of those gene-related defects that was associated with a disease. And yet what was actually discovered is quite the opposite. It was found that most of these chronic diseases that we have, like heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, stroke, arthritis, dementia, most forms of cancer, are not caused by a single gene having a difficulty. And in fact, there is no gene, single gene, that codes for any of those diseases. But rather, what we have are the genes that actually tell us how we uniquely respond to our own environment and how by the right environment, that's diet, lifestyle, exercise program or activity program, stress management, environmental exposures, by the design of the right program, our genes will express good health. But throw those genes into a faulty environment based on our own genetic uniqueness, and now those genes express alarm, which we call disease. This is a tremendously empowering new discovery in the 21st century because we can't change our genes easily, but what we can change is the message that's going to our genes from our lifestyle, our diet, and environment that can alter then how our genes experience health and or disease. So my belief is that this empowers individuals to take charge and work in collaboration with their healthcare provider, their doctors and other healthcare uh, members of the healthcare community to create a program that's personalized to their specific need so that they can fully access that God-given health that resides in all of our genomes that may have been blunted or may have been perverted as a consequence of things that the genes were exposed to that just weren't in their best interest. And I think this is a, a, a truly as big a change in thinking as if we went to the last turn of the century, going from the 19th to the 20th century, where the big discovery of that age was discovering how bacteria and microorganisms caused infectious disease, from which things like immune, uh, immunity through immunization and later antibiotics were developed that gave birth to the medicine of the 20th century. We're now seeing the birthing of the medicine of the 21st century that's a patient-centered form of healthcare that utilizes these big levers of how the genes interact with the environment and lifestyle to create good health as the tools for our future. Well, epigenetics is a science that has been coming up with some of the most um, uh, amazing uh, research results um, many of which you describe in your book. Your book, by the way, is absolutely wonderful, and it's a medical science nerd's paradise. Um, one, one of the things that you describe in your book, for example, was a, um, an experiment on lab animals that showed that changes in gene in the genetic expression could be induced 
through stress or diet or whatever it was. And these changes could then be passed on to the next generation. So I think the, the implications here for how um, we are going down this path of increasing diabetes and cancer and so on um, could do well to look at this mechanism. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I think this is a, a very, very remarkable part of this uh, the story of the age in which we find ourselves, which is an age of remarkable discovery. Um, what has been found, as you said, is that there are certain things that we are exposed to through our daily living. They could be things like the foods we're eating, or they could be chemicals that we're exposed to, or drugs that we're taking, or extraordinary stress uh, episodes in our life that actually put uh, marks on our genes. And these marks are, are marks that either say, read this book of part of our book of life, which we call our gene, or don't read here. This is, uh, this is not allowed to be read anymore. And these marks then alter the way that our genes are expressed, and therefore they alter then how we look, act, and feel. And this, this concept that there are things that could actually alter the way that our genes are expressing themselves is a very, very dramatic new kind of concept that gives the opportunity for us to recognize that we can alter these marks on our genes, both putting different marks on and taking other marks off, so that we can open up the, uh, the chapters in our book of life that are what I call our bliss chapters. They are the good health chapters. They are the wonderful day chapters. They are the exhilaration of living chapters. And we can silence those chapters of our book that I call the Greek tragedy chapters, the chapters that are related to uh, dark days and depression and disease and, and uh, inflammation and things that uh, cause people uh, anguish. So I, I think that this discussion of epigenetics and how it relates to the all opportunity for people to construct healthy living outcomes for a century of good living is a very, very remarkable new breakthrough in thinking. And, and by the way, it's really the, one of the fundamental uh, themes that I've tried to weave through the disease delusion, the book, in, in helping the reader to understand how they personally can access this information through the various uh, questionnaires and chapters that I have so that they can design their own program that will start uh, using this information as a tool in their own lives rather than just being out there as discoveries without application. The, this approach also raises a lot of warning flags in terms of what we are doing either um, on the commercial level through exposure to antibiotics, through exposure to toxins um, in our food supply as well as um, our emotional level. Talk about the different kinds of environmental stresses that can change genetic expression, both internal and external. Yes, uh, again, these are parts of this uh, emerging story, which is, is so fascinating. Um, I've had the, the privilege of interacting uh, with the person I call the father of nutritional epigenetics. Uh, his name is Randy Jertle. And J-I-R-T-L-E, uh, Dr. Jertle uh, was a professor at um, Duke University Medical School for uh, many years and made the most remarkable discovery with his postdoctoral student, Robert uh, Waterland, 
in which they found that when they fed a pregnant animal uh, called the agouti mouse, uh, a very high level of vitamin B12 and folic acid in their uh, diet, and, and this is an animal that was newly pregnant, that the offspring of that animal, of the mother, uh, not only had a different coat color, meaning their fur was a different color, but most interestingly, they lived about 30 to 50% longer than their mothers, and whereas their mothers, obvious, often because of the genetic nature of these mice, would get cancer and diabetes uh, early in their lifespan, the, the offspring who were raised by mothers who were supplemented in the diet early in their pregnancy with vitamin B12 and folic acid ended up not only living longer but didn't get diabetes and didn't get cancer and stayed lean. They didn't get fat like their mothers. Um, and so this discovery in this rodent animal model gave rise to the scientific community suddenly recognizing that there was something about nutrition that could absolutely influence the development of the embryo uh, in such a way that it could alter how it looked, act, and um, performed in terms of its health over the course of its uh, lifespan. And, and before that, we, we recognized that you know, prenatal nutrition was important, and we certainly recognized that uh, mothers needed to be on a good diet when they, were, when they were conceiving children, but we didn't recognize the potential implications of specific nutrients and what role they could play in actually completely changing the way genes were expressed in their offspring so that those, those offspring became more susceptible to disease. They had different problems that the, uh, the genes would express these alarm responses. And I think that this was further amplified when uh, investigators at McGill, McGill University in uh, Montreal, Canada looked at the impact of extraordinary stress on pregnant uh, animals in which they found once again just as with nutrients, that excessive stress during early pregnancy resulted in offspring that had uh, epigenetic marks placed on their book of life, on their genome, so that they were, the offspring were extraordinarily stress prone. They had hypervigilant personalities. They were aggressive. They were uh, almost like they were angry and hostile. And this was a consequence, again, when they did a very detailed analysis of the effects of this stress on their genome, found that they had altered the marks on the genome through the stress during pregnancy such that it altered their uh, gene expression and changed their pattern of behavior into a much more aggressive, much more hypervigilant personality type. So when you start thinking of things like children who are in uh, in situations uh, either in utero or, or in infancy, which are hostile or fearful situations, uh, highly stressful areas of, of the world where there's war or there's a, a concern about safety, what effects that has potentially on behavior through these epigenetic changes? It, it raises extraordinarily new and important questions about how we are designing our environment, how we're living our lifestyles, what kind of chemicals and, and, and stress patterns we're exposed to, because all of these factors appear to have the potential of altering genetic expression. Now, the good news in the story is that many of these marks that are put on 
uh, by altered diet or chemical exposure or stress can also be uh, removed, they're labile, and they can be replaced with friendly messages. So it's not a one-way street. It appears as if many of these are reversible, but it does raise in our, uh, I think, observation that we have to recognize that there's no drug that's going to treat these problems. We need to treat them by altering the epigenetic profile by changing the way that the messages come to the genes through our diet, lifestyle, and environment and stress patterns so that we end up with a different um, health outcome. You have a number of um, kind of collections of items like your um, seven uh, factors that you need to deal with in your health and your, your four R's. Um, let's start with some of the factors that we need to consider, like diet, detoxification, et cetera. What are they? Yeah, I think that's uh, what I've tried to do in the book is um, to take the learning that we've had over the last 30-plus years in the development of uh, what I have called the Institute for Functional Medicine that now has had over 100,000 healthcare practitioners go through our courses over the last 25 years and distill down the literally thousands of medical studies and research papers that have been published and try to understand what they're telling us about ways that people could design personalized programs for their own health without becoming an expert in health sciences or in medicine. And when I uh, uh, when we did this evaluation, we found that there were basically seven buckets that these studies could be divided among that related to what we call the seven key or core physiological processes. These are the things that control uh, the big levers that control the effects that ultimately give rise to disease. Uh, and, and when I say disease, I mean many, many of the uh, of the chronic chronic uh, age diseases like arthritis or diabetes or uh, heart disease or dementia and these seven core physiological processes which i describe in the book uh, in in seven different chapters so we go through each one of them providing a questionnaire at the beginning of each chapter so a person who is reading the book can determine whether that chapter really relates to their specific uh, situation we call these the core imbalances in other words where are the core imbalances that that particular person has in these seven processes that may give rise to uh, health-related issues, chronic health-related issues. So these include, these seven different core physiological processes include things such as uh, digestive function. And our digestive function, uh, which obviously uh, has to do with our gastrointestinal system, is more than just breaking down food into absorbable nutrients that get into our body and can help to nourish cells. It also is where more than 50% of our body's immune system is localized. And this is a new aha for many people to recognize that our digestive organ, our digestive system, is more than just a piece of plumbing. It also is a very important part of our body's immune system. So when we talk about a person who has an imbalance in their core physiological process associated with the digestive system, we then think they have an imbalance in their immune system. They become more susceptible to various types of inflammatory conditions like arthritis. They have potentially more risk to various types of um, problems in their uh, cardiac uh, and heart system and, and in, in their brain with dementia. So we want to 
find uh, an approach towards uh, restoring proper function of this uh, gastrointestinal uh, disturbance. And, and the way we do that is uh, we've designed a program that we call the 4R program. The R's each stand for a specific component of the program. So those four R's are remove is the first R, which means remove the uh, offenders that are activating the immune system of the intestinal tract. And these could be allergens. They could be things like gluten in the diet. They could be infectious agents that are found in our diet, like uh, the yeast candida albicans or various types of bacteria like clostridia that are in uh, spoiled food. Or it may be also uh, chemicals that are found in the food as food additives or uh, food adulterants uh, that cause the um, immune system of our intestinal tract to be activated. So that's the first R is remove. The second R is, re is um, uh, replace, and that's uh, related to people who may not be secreting enough digestive enzymes to properly digest their food properly and break down protein and carbohydrate and fat into the building blocks that can be absorbed. So we talk about what to do if you want to replace digestive enzymes and replace uh, stomach acid to properly activate your digestive system. The That's third a R, problem as we get older, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Uh, we find a very high prevalence of uh, what we call a uh, smoothing out of the uh, intestinal line or the stomach lining which is where stomach acid is secreted. So you start getting a low acid secretion from the cells called the parietal cells of the stomach, and that then causes the person to have a lowered ability actually to digest their food and abstract their nutrients. And this is even further aggravated if they're on agents that would be considered antacids like proton pump inhibitors or uh, these anti-acid compounds that block uh, stomach acid. So that could even further aggravate the problem. And then they end up uh, not being able to absorb nutrients like vitamin B12 effectively, and they have a, a problem with anemia, and, and then that causes all sorts of other uh, problems. So uh, the, the third, this, this R of replace has to do with making sure there's proper stomach acid and, uh, and digestive enzymes. The third R is, uh, stands for re-inoculate, and this is adding back to friendly bacteria that live in our, our intestinal tract to help digest and uh, influence properly our immune system. So these are the probiotic and prebiotic supplements that we often use to restore a proper digestive function. And then the last R, the fourth R, stands for uh, re recovery or repair. And these are nutrients that are known to be necessary for the the body's uh, digestive system to, uh, to heal itself includes things like zinc, vitamin E, uh, essential omega-3 fatty acids or fish oils, uh, the amino acid arginine, the amino acid glutamine. Uh, I, I discuss each of these in the book and, and describe how this 4-hour program can be uh, applied. So this is an example of, of one of the seven core physiological processes and how, if it's imbalanced, uh, we can restore function using an appropriate personalized approach, which is the whole focus of why the book was written. Yeah, the word personalized is the magic word because uh, you, you point out all of these different factors and the different permutations and combinations of them are, are almost, are, are infinite, I guess. So um, to... Yes, to I think that we, we, we had medicine so long that it was really designed for... Um, for the average person, we used to call it the 70-kilogram human, you know, the, the mythical average person that, in my 
40 years in healthcare, I've yet to see an average mythical human being because each person brings their own uniqueness into the into the clinic and into their needs. So uh, we're moving actually from this medicine of the average, which is a pill for an L for every disease, to a medicine of the individual where personalized programs will really greatly improve uh, success and outcome and reduce adverse side effects and improve uh, effectiveness. And that's what uh, the disease delusion is all about. Obviously, the, the title of the book uh, almost seems like a contradiction in terms. Why would I call a book disease delusion? I mean, there's no delusion that we have diseases. That's obviously true. The delusion, however, is where these diseases came from. Uh, we, we have thought for... Um, that for a long time, I think many people that these are genetic, they kind of just were inherited. We, we got the bad luck of the draw and we got the genes for heart disease or diabetes or high blood pressure or, or whatever the disease might be. And the 21st century has really found that only, say, a small percentage of the genes are hard, or excuse me, of the diseases are hardwired to our genes. In fact, 20 to 25% of the cause of chronic disease is hardwired to our gene. The other, uh, 75 to 80% comes from the message that our genes receive from our lifestyle, environment, diet, and so forth. So uh, I think that we have a lot more exciting opportunities to create good health than we ever recognize when we can read this information correctly and implement a personalized program. You talk about the 80-20 rule, and you uh, emphasize the value of working with an enlightened medical practitioner. Um, how much, how far can a person go just with your book? And um, are you just covering your backside on the practitioner bit? Or um, is that um, a real essential component of achieving your best health? Well, I think, Miriam, you and I probably have the same um, understanding and advocacy in this with that question. And that is, what we've recognized is uh, there is no one that's more concerned about our health than us. Uh, although we're not, most people are not medical experts, they do live in their bodies 24-7, 365, and they have more knowledge about how their body responds to the world than, than any medical practitioner would have, and they actually have probably more interest in good health than the medical practitioner would have uh, because it's their body they're living in. So the, the medicine of the 21st century is, is a medicine that's going to be a partnership type relationship between the healthcare provider doctor who has a tremendous amount of knowledge about the technologies and the, the concepts and the diagnostic criteria uh, that relate to health and disease. So they are experts in the field, but that should be then seen in partnership with the patient who knows more about their body and about their responses. And so this new healthcare relationship is one of partnership uh, rather than what I would call command and control or, or rescue or victim is what some people would term the old relationship in which the victim, the perceived victim being the patient, comes on bended knees to the rescuer, which is the doctor, to rescue them from their ravage of disease and provide them a prescription for a specific set of pills that they take that will solve the problem. Uh, that model just has not been successful in managing uh, the outcome of chronic illness. The new model is that the patient comes as an informed, interested patient in their long-term health outcome, 
and works collaboratively with the healthcare provider to design a personalized program that will then deliver an outcome that is administered by the patient because they're the one that's going to go home and do it. It's their life. They're the one that's going to eat, live, drink, breathe, uh, think, and act, and uh, take medicines. So they then have to become the uh, universal controller of their own program. And I think that's why I believe disease delusion is a helpful first step because a patient can only become an informed partner if they know the questions to ask. If they don't know the questions to ask, it's impossible to get an answer because you can only get an answer to a question you ask. So the book really helps the reader, I believe, to navigate more effectively the appropriate questions that they need to ask about themselves so they'll become an informed patient and an informed health consumer and they will take charge successfully of their health trajectory for 80, 90, or 100 years of living. That's the, the new health mentality. Although it's very seductive to have a symptom and say, go to a doctor and ask for a pill to deal with that symptom. But what I see is people, um, you know, ending up with dozens of pills, each additional pill treating the side effects of the previous one. And you never actually get to the cause of the imbalance. You're only treating symptoms upon symptoms. So um, I guess what you're saying is it's up to the individual to say, okay, this stops here. I want to get to the bottom of it. And it takes discipline. It takes actual application. We all know that we have to exercise and eat right. But do we do it? Sometimes. So um, how, long, how long would you say that it takes to be really rigorous in following one of these programs to actually see results in your health? Well, again, I think you hit on a very important point there. Um, you know, I, I think that the old KISS concept, keep it simple, uh, is, a, is a very important part of any program because if we make this so complicated and so uh, unusual, uh, the probability that any one of us will stay on that program and really participate in the long term is very low. And that's what I've tried to be very realistic about is, uh, in the design of the, of the book, is to try to really talk through, uh, as you say, the 80% rule. What are the big things that can be done to really make uh, significant changes in health outcome without going into such a, a rigorous program that your life becomes so restricted that you can't even enjoy it? And, um, you know, there are some fairly simple first-line things that we all recognize should be done. I mean, we should stop smoking, obviously, and there are now many approaches that are successful for cessation of smoking. And we should stop drinking high-fructose corn syrup sweetened beverages because they're really just not in the best interest of our good health, and that's something that we all could do fairly simply. It's not that difficult to uh, to give up um, HFCF uh, sweetened beverages. So these, these are some of the big, big things. Then we get into uh, you know the next level things, which is okay. How do we? How do I introduce a a diet without becoming becoming a food fattist? How can I still enjoy going to restaurants? How can I eat to my specific need? I mean, the food for one might be the poison for another. So we want to make sure that our 
particular food selections are, are designed around our specific needs. And then we want variety. We want ability to eat different types of foods, but we want to keep certain ground rules that are related to our our, our genetic need. And, and that's, again, the kind of the things that I talk about in the book is how do you read your genes in such a way that you can design your dietary kind of basic structure or program without becoming a food fattist. I think that these big questions, when introduced, can result in, in my experience, in, say, 10 to 12 weeks in dramatic changes in healthcare. I mean, we have literally thousands of patients that we followed over the years in, in our research uh, on all sorts of different types of clinical studies that uh, I think there's a, a general rule of thumb that in 10 to 12 weeks with a person uh, committing themselves to a program that they can, they can apply and stay on, that uh, they can have absolutely dramatic changes in their health, their vitality, their sleep patterns, their energy, their alertness, uh, reduction of pain, improved digestion, um, uh, better mobility. I mean, all sorts of things that come as uh, accessory side effects of uh, putting a good program in place, a personalized lifestyle uh, healthcare program. And, and that's, to me, a, um, we talk about uh, life insurance, you know, it's interesting what the term life insurance uh, really applies to what I call death insurance. It pays the beneficiaries for our, for our death. Um, life insurance is something that lives with us every day that ensures good living. And so what, what this really re reflects, the way I'm describing it, is a living life insurance program. It's a, it's a, uh, pays uh, to the beneficiary, which is the person, uh, an annuity every day of living because they feel better, higher energy, higher performance, less disability, uh, and ultimately less disease that's going to rob from them uh, uh, years of living, and uh, it's going to improve their health span. You know, I'm reminded of the old story of the frog in the pot of water when you gradually turn up the heat. You know, we, we gradually lose function as we age. We gradually have aches and pains come on, and we kind of forget what it really feels like to be pain-free, to have energy. And what you're offering in your book is a reversal of all those little things that rob us of our energy. And, you know, with, with relatively small interventions, you talk about functional foods like green tea and hops. Tell us, tell us about the role of these kind of small interventions. Yes, again, I think that um, as contrasted to taking a pharmaceutical product, which has been designed very effectively by medicinal and pharmaceutical scientists um, for a very hard-hitting response to a body's function. So these are, are great products if you're in crisis and, and need a therapeutic agent to take charge of your metabolism or physiology immediately. And so this uh, pharmacopoeia, there's the range of thousands of, of drugs that we have available, uh, when used in the right way uh, for short periods of time can be lifesavers. There's no question about it. And in fact, if I have a crisis illness or disease condition, uh, I'd like it to be in the United States and I'd like it uh, to be treated with the extraordinary quality of uh, healthcare professionals we have in the medical centers of the United States. But these kind of hard-hitting drugs are not so good for the management of chronic complaints because they, over the long term, have many adverse side effects. So we pay uh, some price for their long-term use in terms of their adverse effects. 
So the question is, what's the alternative? And the alternative is to recognize that within our foods, historically, if we're eating minimally processed variety of foods from uh, plant and animal sources, that we're getting a, a very large number of bioactive compounds or bioactive uh, substances, particularly from plants. These are called phytochemicals, phyto, P-H-Y-T-O, meaning plant-derived substances. These, these phytochemical nutrients, like bioflavonoids and isoflavones and quinones and polyphenols, and I mean, I, there's, there's thousands of these different compounds found in, in, in plant foods, fruits and vegetables and grains and beans, these compounds have tremendous influence, although they're small in amount and they have very lower activities relative to a drug, but over the course of living, they can really influence in a very effective way the um, channeling of our physiology and our gene expression patterns in a healthy way. They tend to be the, uh, the shop guards of controlling healthy physiological function, and they do so by discoveries that we've made only within the last 20 years uh, in, in the way that they help the genes to express themselves in a, um, uh, a healthy fashion. And therefore, these phytochemicals that are found in a rich plant-based diet that's rich in colors of green and red and orange and blue and purple and yellow and, and the, these colored compounds that are found in plant foods, which are these phytochemicals play very, very important roles in modulating our physiology and helping to normalize our health and restricting then these disturbances that we call disease that are associated with altered gene expression. These discoveries, which I describe in the book, are really tremendously important discoveries only within the last 10 or 20 years that help us to recognize that these phytonutrients or phytochemicals that we have often taken out of foods when we process foods and made them white, um, like white flour, for instance, uh, that these are often the missing link that are necessary in a diet for a person to continue to achieve at high level of health throughout living. And the removal of those from our diets was associated with the increasing incidence of these chronic illnesses. So this, uh, you know, they say health is not a mystery. Uh, it's only a mystery if you don't ask the right questions. Once you start asking the right questions, the answers are often there from these extraordinary discoveries. And then we can apply that information successfully by constructing an appropriate diet and lifestyle so that it will re retard and prevent the onset of these chronic age-related diseases. Well, give us some examples of conditions and what phytochemical interventions phytonutrient interventions you would suggest? Yeah, let's use one that I think has been on the minds of a lot of people uh, because it's been in the news lately, and that's the, uh, the Indian spice uh, turmeric. Um, as you probably recognize, that, that very vivid yellow uh, spice, Indian spice, uh, has a substance in it called curcumin. And curcumin is a phytochemical that is made by the plant that uh, produces the spice turmeric. And uh, curcumin has been found through extensive studies. In fact, there are literally thousands of, of different types of medical and, and um, biochemical and cellular studies on curcumin. And what it's been found is that it participates, just as I was describing, in helping to retard 
the onset of uh, certain kinds of inflammatory processes that are associated with diabetes and heart disease and arthritis. So uh, the simple explanation would be to say it's an anti-inflammatory, but it's actually uh, more than an anti-inflammatory. What it really represents is uh, a, a an agent that modulates gene expression, so it prevents the expression of our book of life that's associated with these inflammatory states that are associated with multiple types of chronic illness. So curcumin would be a good example of a, um, a substance that you don't need a whole lot of in your diet, but uh, a small amount can have a very uh, important role to play in modulating inflammatory disorders. Another example would be, um, we've heard a lot about green tea, and uh, the tea plant has in it a variety of phytochemicals, one of which is called epigallocatechin gallate, or ECGC is its abbreviation. And this particular uh, phytochemical has a very powerful role to play in preventing um, uh, ad uh, adverse cellular division, meaning uh, things that are associated with uh, with the cancer induction process. So it's been called a chemopreventive nutrient, meaning it it's a cancer preventive agent, and it has very powerful role to play in keeping cell uh, DNA stabilized so that it doesn't undergo transitions into a uh, oncogenic or uh, cancerous state. Another one that uh, has gotten a lot in the news recently is uh, from. Uh, grape skins and from peanut skins, and uh, it's called resveratrol. And resveratrol, uh, turns out, has a very, very interesting role to play because resveratrol appears to modulate a whole family of genes uh, that are expressed uh, that are related to what many people call longevity genes. They uh, they tend to regulate uh, life, um, uh, what, what, what's, what's called biological aging. So resveratrol from uh, grapes and, and uh, peanuts is another one of those phytochemicals that has been found to be very useful. And I could go on and on. There are literally thousands of these that uh, have different personalities that are found in a complex plant-based diet. You had a lovely little word. Was it hormutic or the, 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 the term for a small effect? A large effect from a small quantity. Yeah, that's called um, hormesis. That's the term that's used, H-O-R-E-M-I-M-E-S-I-S. Hormesis is um, a term that really refers to a much larger effect from a small amount of exposure of, of a substance than to be expected. And these uh, substances that are found in plants that I've been describing have uh, a, a, an effect that's called xenohormesis, meaning uh, xeno is an X-E-N, uh, meaning a foreigner, because these are not substances that the body makes. They come from plants, so they're a foreign substance to the body, but they have this beneficial hormetic effect, meaning a small amount of exposure uh, to the body produces a much more important uh, outcome, positive effect than we would have we would have predicted. So xenohormesis is a term that has been applied to the uh, effect that these phytochemicals have in helping to stabilize our health and resist disease. But it works the other way as well. Uh, you mentioned in your book the, uh, the plasticizer. Uh, yes, that's true, that if you look at uh, certain 
foreign chemicals like uh, let's take one that's in the news a lot recently BPA bisphenol A which is a plasticizer found in, in all sorts of plastics that's ubiquitous in our environment that has a, a hormetic effect a xenohormetic effect but it's an opposite effect it induces genes to be in an inflammatory state it induces them to undergo cellular replication meaning uh, can induce cancer in animals so uh, a very low level of exposure to BPA may have not a good effect on gene expression, but a bad effect on gene expression. So xenohormesis can play both ways. It can both be good uh, in that it stabilizes gene expression, or it can be bad in that it causes adverse expression of uh, alarm genes that turn on uh, adverse cellular uh, function and disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about um, the institutes that you set up. Yes, what, what I recognized a few years ago was that we really needed two kinds of, uh, of institutes uh, to help transform healthcare. Uh, one is one that would uh, teach healthcare providers and doctors uh, about these uh, concepts that I've been describing so that they could uh, implement them more effectively in their practice. And so we established in 1991 the Institute for Functional Medicine, which, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very proud to say now has had over 100,000 doctors go through its courses. It uh, provides continuing medical education courses in both in the United States, Canada, and around the world. And it has a textbook of medicine that's used in a number of medical schools in the country. So it is a, um, a very, very influential organization in the health education uh, or let's call it medical education of uh, healthcare providers. And in fact, there's a uh, a very good website for that, uh, which you can go um, Google Institute for Functional Medicine and go to the website and learn more about it. The other part of this uh, process, however, is educating healthcare consumers, um, the health conscious people who really want to know more about this and, and how to employ these concepts in their lives. And so we established a second institute called the Personalized Lifestyle Medical Institute or Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute or PLMI uh, that would be more involved with trying to educate consumers about how they can use these new breakthrough concepts in their lives to achieve health. So we have a website obviously for that as well. You can Google Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute or plminstitute.org. And uh, that will then uh, open up a whole uh, variety of resources from experts in the field that have been blogging on these topics and the news to use as it relates to new discoveries that are being made in this area. So the combination of healthcare consumers becoming more enlightened and healthcare professionals becoming more knowledgeable hopefully drives from the top to the and the bottom to the middle. So we transform healthcare because we need to really form a true healthcare system. We have a very good disease care system, but we do not have a health care system presently. So this is an opportunity right now uh, to really create a health care system in the country that will help beat back this rising tide uh, of chronic illness. And a word to the uh, perhaps the insurance companies who have a big uh, stake in the health care system. Uh, what do you think would be the effect of widespread adoption of your approach on the costs of health care in the country? You know, it's very interesting. We've been doing a lot of work in communicating now with major um, health care insurance providers, uh, third-party providers, as well as discussing this with um, Medicare and uh, with uh, uh, Veterans Administration uh, administrators. 
And there's a general kind of common theme you know, among all these groups that we need to find ways of saving money because we we are using our crisis care system way too much, our disease care, hospital-based medicine, and that we, we have to reduce costs by getting people healthier. Everybody is aligned to that objective. Uh, the, the problem is that uh, a lot of people don't know uh, is, is they don't have an idea of a system that's actually going to create uh, a reduction in the burden of uh, expenses in the in the hospital-based medicine system. The concepts that I've been describing, uh, which are affiliated with now by literally tens of thousands of other professionals that I'm associated with, is such a system that would actually reduce the burden of unnecessary expenses for crisis medicine and, and acute disease treatment. And it would, it would allow uh, the compression of sickness and illness. It would improve health span of individuals. And it would deliver an outcome of saving literally tens of billions of dollars of expenditures a year that are are not necessary once you start implementing the appropriate uh, personalized uh, healthcare model. It would also do something that probably is the most important of all, and that it would be uh, reducing human suffering, unnecessary loss of good health and, and burden of disease and, and all the kinds of uh, difficulties occur in life when we start losing our good health and our mobility and our, and our uh, kind of freedom of range of motion and, and uh, uh, we start having restricted uh, issues related to health problems. So I think it, it, it's a winner on every level. It's a winner in that it delivers to the individual a feeling of um, uh, compressing illness and, and improving their health span and it, it, uh, it wins on the level of our economics by reducing unnecessary expenditures and probably most people are aware of the fact that right now if if our aging baby boomers have the same disease patterns as their parents as they go now into their 60s and 70s, the amount of medical services they will require will be something on the order of $35 trillion of expenses that would be offered, uh, would be uh, asked of Medicare. $35 trillion or over, over twofold the present national debt just to serve those chronic disease needs of an aging baby boomer population. Well, clearly that could uh, bankrupt the country. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to find ways of reducing this uh, financial uh, burden and improving the health of individuals. And I I'm suggesting that uh, what we talk about in the disease delusion is such a model. It would deliver that outcome. It would reduce the burden of unnecessary expenses. It would improve the health of the individual and it would give the freedom of people from disease so they could live, uh, you know, decades of high-level living without uh, having the worry of, um, of disease at their coattail. From your lips to the ears of the medical establishment, the politicians, and the general public, uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Bland, author of The Disease Delusion, Conquering the Causes of Chronic Illness, for a healthier, longer, and happier life. Dr. Bland, thank you so much for being with us today and for the wonderful work that you've been doing. Well, Miriam, thank you, and thanks uh, for your advocacy. I think what you're doing is absolutely critically important to, uh, to help uh, catalyze this transformation in healthcare. I appreciate it very much. Next week, our guest is Bruce Davis, Ph.D., talking about his book, The Love Letters. St. Francis and St. Clare of Assisi meet Pope Francis. And now we're going to close with our track of the week from the fabulous Gina Citoli called Celebrate Your Life.
Wow, the dynamic creative force that is Gina Citoli singing about a celebration of life. Gina's website is ginacitoli.com. That's G-I-N-A-C-I-T-O-L-I.com. And you can find out about her on our Speakers Bureau website, luminaryvoices.com. And while we're in the neighborhood of websites, do visit our very own website, ncreview.com. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.